I, I've been an ordained pastor for a little over 10 years now. And in that time, I've come to believe that the biggest enemy of the church, the biggest threat to followers of Christ, is not, does not come from outside the walls of the church, but from inside. The biggest threat to the cause of Christ, in my estimation, is legalism. It's a Christian legalistic faith, if, if you can think of it that way. It's a, it's a legalistic faith that looks so good. It looks like Christian faith, but it's a counterfeit faith that enslaves us to the law and keeps us from experiencing abundant life in Christ. It works its way in, out, out like this, where we want to do things for God, and we feel like we need to do things for God, or we'll be out of God's favor. And if we're not doing the right things, then we need to confess, clear the air, and then begin doing the right things. It smacks of, of, of truth, but it's, it's slippery, it's deceptive. Christian legalism looks like this. If you don't do the right things, you feel God is disappointed and disapproves of you. And so you need Christ to forgive you, and then you need to begin doing the things right or stop doing the things wrong. For some of us, this sums up our Christian experience. But really, this is a counterfeit gospel. We can't gain God's favor by doing right things. The miracle that happens in John chapter 9, I think, happened and is included in our gospel um, because it helps us to understand the grip of legalism and what that looks like and how it acts so we can recognize it in our own lives. So before we get to the passage, let me start with application. I want you to begin applying the idea ahead of time so that you can absorb the word and, and take it home. Let me ask you this question. Are you in the grip of legalism? And now I know you're going to say no to this. Who's going to answer, yes, Pastor Laird, I'm in the grip of legalism. Well, how do you know if you're in the grip of legalism? Because I know all of us intellectually would say we're not in the grip of legalism. We know that we're justified by Christ's death on the cross. His sacrifice for us justifies us. It's by grace through faith that we are saved, not by works. We all believe that intellectually. But I want to ask you, how does this actively play out in your life? Practically speaking, do your actions betray your intellectual faith? And I want to say that it's so easy to slip into Christian legalism. Not sure what I mean by that yet? Let me give you a few scenarios. Do you ever find yourself going to church or reading the Bible or praying, not because you want to, but because you want to stay on good terms with God? In other words, you're not reading the Bible or going to church or praying because you want to, but because you feel like you'll let God down if you don't, and he'll be disappointed in you. Or do you ever find yourself doing a good but difficult deed, not because you want to, but because you know it's the right thing, and if you don't, you'll feel guilty? Do you want to baptize your kids even though you don't have any other outward expression or component of your faith? Do you ever find yourself trying to be extra good 
when you need God to do your favor. You're going in for surgery. You got a job interview. Your child is dating someone you don't want them to hang out with too long. And you find yourself being extra good as you pray. In essence, all these things are, are you operating on the assumption that as long as I do A, B, or C and keep myself from doing X, Y, and Z, I have a good standing with God. I know intellectually we don't believe that, but does, does our actions say that? Is that how our faith practically works out? Well, if you consciously or subconsciously believe that, don't worry. You're in good company. It seems like Saturday is my extra holy day where I'm extra good because I'm in the pulpit on Sunday. I know I can't win God's favor, but I have a bent towards legalism. And it hinders Christ's work in me. It hinders my faith in Christ. Our passage this evening shows us how ridiculous we look when we act in Christian legalism and how much we are missing when we substitute this kind of outworking of faith for the true gospel. Let's look at our scripture. Let's start at uh, John chapter 9. We'll look first at verses 1 and 2. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Let's pause for a second. Jesus' and his disciples are walking to the next village and they see this blind guy. I wish they would have gave him a name because he's just referred to as the man or the blind man or the man born blind. It's very impersonal. But the disciples obviously know that he was born blind from birth. In fact, I... I can't say this for sure, but I bet you they have passed this guy plenty of times. Because back in the ancient Near East, if you had any kind of deformity or abnormality or any kind of handicap, you were considered damaged goods. And society basically turned your back, turned its back on you. And you'd have to beg for food because no one would hire you. No one would, you would have to beg for food or beg for money to buy food. And so, folks like our man in the story would pick a spot and beg all day long. They would become noticeable fixtures. And they would pick a strategic spot, either at the entrance of the village where people had to pass, or even better, at the entrance of the synagogue, because people would be coming in with their offerings and have money. And probably feel a little guilty coming out of church and passing you and not helping you out. So they would pick these high traffic strategic areas where they can get the most amount of handouts as possible. And so I imagine the disciples had probably passed this guy. At, at, at any rate, they knew that he was born blind. Think about that for a moment. First century AD, born blind. Maybe this man was 20-something. Maybe he was 30-something. It wasn't enough to be socially outcast, but he was also considered cursed by God. And thus the question that Jesus asked, his, Jesus' followers ask him, was this guy born blind 
because of his sin or his parents' sin. See, it must have bugged the disciples enough to ask Jesus. I mean, if you're born blind, it doesn't seem like it could be your sin that causes you to be born blind. So it must be the parents' sin. And so they put the question to Jesus. They don't have the medical or scientific knowledge we have today. There were no hearing aids or prosthetics or wheelchairs or braille. And because of the lack of information, there was a, lack of super, there was a lot of superstition. And if you had a handicap, you must have done something really wrong. God cursed you for some good reason. What went along with this is that not many people would want to hang out with you because you were cursed. Now, here in 2011, we're really not that much different. Well, we know about science and cause and effect, but we, when bad things happen, you often hear, what have I done to deserve this? Have you ever uttered that yourself? What have I done to deserve this? When the going gets bad enough, even someone who doesn't believe in God will say, God, why are you doing this to me? Atheists are turned agnostics during suffering. We're almost inborn with this idea that God is sitting up there in his cosmic computer waiting to hit the smite button. In fact, one of my favorite Far Side cartoons is, uh, depicts this. Take a quick peek. I don't know if you can see that. There's a man walking under the piano, and there's God, his fingers right over the smite button. This is not reality. The Bible doesn't... The God of the Bible doesn't look like this at all. This is not the creator of the universe. Listen how John, uh, Jesus responds in John 3 through 5. Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Basically, Jesus is saying, you're asking the wrong question. You're seeing hardship and you're asking, why did God do this? Who sinned? Instead, you should be asking, asking two other questions. You should be asking what or where. That is, what is God up to? Where is God at work? Where is he at in all this so we can pick up and benefit from what he's doing? Legalism wants to draw lines. Legalism wants to say, this, this guy is outside of the realm of normal, therefore he must have sinned. Jesus is saying, no, God is at work. In a sense, I think Jesus is saying, you don't have God figured out, so don't presume anything about it. The only thing we have control over is, and we don't even really have control over that, but the only thing we can benefit from is the what's and the where's. What is God up to? Where is he at work? And if you could put your hand around where God is at work, you can partake in something really special. I've told you this uh, experience before. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this in an evening service. But it really fits, so I want to share it again. And uh, I've, I, I, I had a, I've had many really uh, why God experiences, but uh, the one in particular involved 
the first time that we brought uh, Miriam into the country, our uh, adopted daughter from Haiti, and we were, it was two weeks into it, it was the middle of December, it was actually a, on my birthday that, that uh, Miriam had a, a, a major manic episode, and she went completely hysterical and went non-functioning. Now, come to find out, this had happened a, at least a couple other times in Haiti, but we didn't know about it. This is the first time we're dealing about it with it. This is the first time we're, we're realizing some major stuff. And uh, she had to be hospitalized in a juvenile mental health facility. I don't know if you've ever been in, in any of those, but they're not the greatest places. And it was about six days into the hospitalization stay that I was sitting in the parking lot, feeling about as low as I have up to this point in my life, and uh, just feeling really without hope, feeling very empty, very hopeless. And I was about to get out of the car, but I thought, I can't be any help, any good if I walk in with this attitude. And so I stopped with the car open. I remember this very, uh, very specifically. With the door open, and I prayed two things. I prayed, God, help me. Have mercy on me. I'm no help to anyone like this. And then I prayed, the second thing, help me to see you in all of this. My suffering didn't change, my circumstances didn't change, but both my prayers were answered. When you walk into uh, the facility, it's almost like walking into a prison. You, you, you go into the, in between two doors, it's like a trap, you know? And they make sure you don't have anything, you know, any drugs or any weapons or anything like that. And then you go in and you check in. And as I'm checking in, one of the head nurses comes up to me and says, me and my family pray for you every night. And I wanted you to know that your example of love to a daughter that you don't even know has encouraged and been noticed by our entire staff. And they know you are a pastor. And I want you to know that Christmas is coming, and if you want to have a worship service, you're welcome to have one here. And, man, when you're down and out and you need encouragement, having that the head nurse saying her entire family's praying for you every night, and that you've lifted the spirits of the staff by your family's presence there, that was very helpful. And see God at work saying, hey, we like your Christianity. You could bring it in here and have a, have a Christmas service with the other kids in the facility. See, legalism breeds, why this, did this happen to me? Why, God? Why did you let it happen to me? And honestly, I wanted to ask that a million times, but I wouldn't let myself do that. As soon as the question would bounce in, I would bounce it out. Legalism shuts down God's work in your life. Let's keep on going. Chapter 6, I mean, uh, verse 6. Having said this, he spit on the ground. I always wondered why Jesus did that. I mean, sometimes he just says, heal, you know, be healed. Sometimes he heals people far away. 
He spits on the ground, makes a mud spit mixture, and wipes it on the guy's eyes. Um, spits on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sense. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, it only looks like him. This is such an amazing miracle that for years and years and years they saw this little baby, then this little toddler, then this little kid, then this teenager, then this young man, then this grown adult, blind. And here this guy comes walking into their, their village seeing and it's such a disconnect from what they see to what they know that some people don't even recognize him. And uh, verse 9, but he himself insisted, I am the man. It's me. I can see. How then were your eyes opened? I, I don't like the way they translated demanded. It, it's really just an average word, but they translated demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. Notice that he calls Jesus the man. That, that, that's as far as his, ex, his extent of his confession so far. The man they called Jesus. Verse 13. They brought... To the Pharisee, the man who had been born blind. Why did they do that? Well, here's where the plot comes in. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eye was the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, he turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. That's the next stage of his expression. So you've got to see, the, the man's chewing on this this whole time. This guy came out of nowhere, healed me. I don't know what he looks like. All I know is the sound of his voice. And uh, I, th I think he's the man they call Jesus. Well, now he ascribes to him as the prophet. He's been mulling this over a little bit. Now, we might say, that's all he could get? He just healed you. You know, can't you say that he's the Messiah? Well, he, he's not there yet. A prophet is, you know, that's about the highest religious category he could think of. He, he didn't say priest. He didn't say Pharisee. He said prophet. That, that's, about, that's about the best religious professional you could get. The most in touch with God. The prophet. He's a prophet. Um, let's continue in our... Where was that? That's not going to sound good on the recording. Where was that? Um, the Jews still did not believe that... Oh, hold on a second. 17. 18. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind... And had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he could see? His parents say, we know he's our son. 
the parents answered. And we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak to himself. Now, you had to have thought that. As soon as that man was born blind and came back to his, his, his home and saw his neighbors, you know he had to have run into his home and, and told his mom and dad, Ma, Dad, I can see. For the first time in my life, I can see. But his parents just answer fact. We know he's his, our son. We know he was born blind. You know that the man must have told him, this guy Jesus put mud on me, I washed, and I was clean. But they won't confess to that. Well, why? It tells us in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, the Pharisees who were questioning him. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ or Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, ask him, he is of age. See, there's the legalism again. There's the exclusion. You follow our expectations, our interpretations. You follow the scripture as we expect it to work out or you're out. And so the parents were afraid. They didn't want to be pushed out of the synagogue. Pushed, being, being put out of the synagogue means being put out of the, the, the faith community. It means that you had a stigma attached to you and that people in the faith community would, be, would have to be really bold to do anything with you, to do business with you, to help you, because you were put out of the faith community by the religious people. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. I love how this man's strength, the man born blind's strength, is being strengthened moment by moment as he ponders what happened to him and realizes the grace that God has shown him. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know is I was blind, but now I see. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? But what, is he say, what he's saying is, one thing I do know is that I got an unmerited gift from God. I was blind, but now I can see. For the first time in my life, I can see. I can see light. I can see colors. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And they can feel, he can feel their legalism. They're bent towards disdain towards Jesus. And he answers them, I have told you already and you didn't listen. This is the, these are the Pharisees. They can, these are the people that will kick him or keep him into the community of faith. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to come become one of his disciples too? They hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. I believe John put that quote in there very purposefully. Remember John 1, chapter 1? The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. 
The man answers. Now he sounds like a preacher. Now that is remarkable. This is amazing. You are the religious scholars. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now his belief has turned to boldness, even in the face of being rejected by the faith community. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Legalism offended. And they threw him out. They excommunicated him. It's amazing. Legalistic faith creates people who are very defensive, very rigid, easily threatened. And rightfully so. If you dismantle their legalistic structure, then you wreck their basis of faith and you jeopardize their standing with God. If they are keeping the law, if they were doing the right things in order to get God's favor, if you say, if you tweak that, then they're standing with God's in jeopardy. And that's just why this normally incredibly celebratory, incredibly joyous, miraculous event turns into this soap opera, sad affair. It threatens their legalistic framework, and so they kick the guy out of church. You're not in line with our expectations. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, so he went after him, Jesus heard he had thrown out, been thrown out, and when he went after him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now remember, he hasn't seen Jesus yet. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. The man said, Lord. Lord. So we've gone from the man called Jesus to a prophet, to a disciple, to Lord. I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. Can you see the two outworkings of faith here? We have legalistic faith, and we have gospel faith. On one hand, we have a group of people that feels they are in good standing with God because they are following Moses' law to a T. And they have expectations that spring up from their understanding of the scriptures, and they're meeting those expectations. And if you're following Moses' laws and the expectations you come, that come with them, then you're in. You're in good standing with God. But if you're not, then you must not be from God. That's legalism. On the other side, we have this man. He feels he like he's in good standing with God by the unmerited act of healing bestowed upon him by Jesus. Not by anything he did, but the sheer gift of Jesus that God has given him. On the one hand, we have one group that feels like Jesus is a sinner, not from God, 
Because Jesus doesn't follow the scripture or their expectations of how the scripture is worked out in life. This man's a Sabbath breaker. He can't be from God. As we think it should be, he doesn't meet up. As we think it should be. Their own expectations are, are cast on other people. And then this man has a continually growing and mature view of Jesus after pondering all that Christ has done for him. He goes from this man called Jesus to prophet, disciple, to Lord worthy of my worship. Finally, the two outworkings of faith demonstrate itself this way. One group adheres strictly to the law and it turns them into judgmental, self-righteous, unloving brats. The man received Christ and surrenders to him and worships him. The Pharisees cling to their legalism and to everyone but themselves appear foolish. Can you imagine the talk? Johnny was can see now for the very first time. Can you believe that? Yeah, and the Pharisees excommunicated him because it happened on Sunday. Well, Saturday. I want to ask us, how often do we find our faith slipping into the autopilot of legalism? I want to call your attention to one more verse and then we'll close. 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's two verses, 8 and 9. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous. The law is not made for us. It's not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. Paul is making a great argument. The law is to point people to their need for God, to point people to their need for Christ. And then when we, they come to Christ, the law is no, more value, no longer valuable for righteousness. It's done its work. Christ is now valuable for righteousness. It's not the keeping of the law that will make you holy. It's not the keeping of the law that will win you approval. It's Christ in you who perfectly kept the law, was perfect. His righteousness is now imputed to you. And it's by surrendering to Christ every day that the heart obedience of the law will find its outworking. See how many of these you can check off. We'll close with this last line of questioning. I live as though my actions will make God or other people approve of me. Does that category, does that, uh, Describe you. I live as though my actions will make God or others approve of me. That's a tough one. 
I'm preoccupied with myself. I foster an independent spirit. I become critical. I become judgmental. I develop a performance lifestyle for myself and others. I tend to be dominated by fears and anxieties. I require unbelieving effort to complete a task. I love that. I require unbelieving effort to complete a task. That means I do tasks without any help from God. I don't need God's help to do tasks because they're not, they don't require faith or belief. I find it difficult to love others. I find it hard, if not possible, to forgive. All these things happen when we live by unbelief under the law. When we live under the law, these things happen. But when we live by faith under grace, these things happen. I run to the Father because I know He loves me. I receive His delight in me. I believe my sins are forgiven, enabling me through the Spirit to love and forgive others. I am able to cultivate a lifestyle of forgiveness. Does this care? characterize you I received by faith my new position as son or daughter for whom there is now no condemnation I understand the power of the sinful nature the damage it can do and the powerlessness of the law to control it I know that only through the spirit's power I can love my neighbor and so I surrender to the spirit's work in my life I break down barriers to loving others as I surrender to Christ's work in me. I don't know about you, but I find myself continually on a slippery slope that brings me back into wanting to do things to prove God that I'm worthy, wanting to do things so God will accept me. And when I don't, when I feel like I'm not so close with God, I have to come to Christ, receive forgiveness, and then I get back on the legalism treadmill. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's a belief that brings about self-surrendering. When we surrender ourselves to Christ, more and more, day by day, we'll find that when we look in the rearview mirror, wow, we're doing a decent job keeping the law. Because it's not about keeping the law anymore. It's about being more and more conformed to Christ's spirit in us.